0: Welcome everybody to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor, and as usual, we break down and analyze TV episodes from week to week, and also I oftentimes provide recommendations that could be good matches for the shows we cover here and review new films and TV series that have recently become available. Currently, we are reviewing and breaking down The Last of Us on HBO and Your Honor on Showtime. We have one more episode of The Last of Us. Next week is the finale, and many of you who watched The Last of Us this week saw a teaser for the new season of Succession, and our coverage of that show will begin in just three weeks. So we have the finale of Your Honor next week, and then in that in-between week, we'll be discussing other shows that are currently on the air, for example, The Return of the Mandalorian, and in general, The Health of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the Star Wars Television Universe, and some of the shakeups that have happened at Disney recently, That will impact those shows and what it means to the health of those franchises. And also, I will be republishing some of our best episodes covering last year's season of Succession in preparation for that return of that very popular show for its finale, for its final season. And at the exact same time, we have just two more episodes of Your Honor on Showtime, a show that seems to be headed for a very grim and violent ending, I would predict, and immediately segueing into Yellowjackets, the hugely popular Showtime series from last year. A girls team who crashes in the mountains on the way to state finals. And some mysterious things happen to them there out in the woods. And now we're catching up with them in their middle age. And we jump back forwards and forwards in time to that fateful summer when they were trapped in the woods. Actually, it's more than a summer. We see the seasons changing. It's still kind of left vague exactly how long they were there before they were rescued. And in their current context now, Middle aged women with families, but with many, many secrets kept. And the mythology in that show is getting more and more complex. So, this was quite a breakout last year for Showtime and very highly anticipated this return of season two. And our coverage of that will also begin in two weeks, right after the wrap up of Your Honor. So, subscribe so you know when all of that becomes available. As for this penultimate episode of The Last of Us, an episode called When We Are in Need. And I'm going to preface my Breakdown here with just a general opinion that I have been up and down on this show this whole entire season. It is exceptionally well made. And yet I find its perspective on its story, and I know it comes from the video game, so it's probably there in the source material already, is a little too narrow and a little too bleak. And honestly, it's not only the tone of the show that is a little off putting to me, it's also the fact that I just feel that the show in general isn't providing that much unique. Storytelling and insight, other than these variations of the zombies, which for me, zombies are just a metaphor. So I really don't care about the mechanism of the zombies. So I don't find that that interesting. And it's what the show is saying about the human condition, I find is a little generic in the context of this genre. That being said, it is exceptionally well made. And we did have episodes like, for me, I know it's a little divisive, but last week's episode I thought was very strong because once again, I need to have some reason to care about these people if they're all simply in slow motion suicide. I have no rooting interest in what I'm seeing. And the show has, unfortunately, in this episode, pivoted back a little bit in that direction. And yet, and yet, it has some of the most interesting philosophical questions that the show asks is in this very episode. So I have a lot of mixed opinions, a lot of opinions on what I saw here in this episode, and I'm going to break them down here for you. After my breakdown of the episode, after the episode breakdown, I'll also be providing my personal list of the 10 Oscar-nominated films from best to worst. I have finally seen all 10 of the Oscar-nominated films, and we are just one week away from the Academy Awards. Stay tuned for that. I'll give you a mini review of each one of those films and my ranking, and most importantly, I think, for all of you out there, where you can stream those films. Most of them are available to stream currently. By the way, we see a very thrilling teaser for the next season of Succession, as I mentioned at the top of this episode of the show. Some interesting points here. We see the siblings contemplating teaming up with Sandy and Stewie to take over their dad's business after being cut out by their father. We see Logan once again telling his children that he loves them, but they are not serious people, something he explicitly said to them last year as well. We see the continuing fallout of the last moments of last season, Shaban and Tom, mistrustful, or at least she is of him. We see that Alexander Skarsgård is back playing Lucas Matson, and that Roman has maybe been assigned as his handler now that there's this merger with Broico, And he's telling him he hates him. So we know this relationship's not a positive one, although this has been a pretty toxic relationship from day one. Logan screams out that they're pirates. So overtly pirate capitalism here on the show. And we see police in the streets, some kind of riots perhaps. That's a big question mark as well. And this is the final season of the show. So I am very, very excited to see how does this all shake out. I loved season three of the show. It was the show at its very best. And yet I felt like the family dynamics had been defined and refined. The show really needed to make its final statement. So I am very excited that that's where we're at. And I cannot wait for these 10 episodes. They should be action-packed this is a show that rarely has a non-essential episode and these are going to be the most exciting i think and we'll be covering here in the show so please do stay tuned
1: no i i believe everything happens for a reason it does i can prove it to you okay we didn't expect this winter to be so cruel nothing will grow game's been hard to find so i sent four of our people to a nearby town to to scavenge what they could And only three of them came back. And the one that didn't was a father. He had a daughter just like you. And her dad was taken from her. Turns out he was murdered by this crazy man. And get this. That crazy man was traveling with a little girl. You
0: see? Everything happens for a reason. All right. Into the episode itself, Past our trailer now. (laughs) This episode is called When We Are In Need, a reference, I believe, to a Bible passage that talks about how God will provide, or God is always there when we are in need. We pick up immediately where we left off last week. This Colorado suburb is even more snow-covered than before. We're introduced to this character, David, leading his flock. He's a preacher in some nearby commune. We see a young girl here very upset. It seems that this is a funeral for her father. And we see the banner hanging in the background, when we are in need, he shall provide. And that's where our title comes from. David is trying to keep this girl calm and placate her with soothing words. He's no longer in pain. And she asks him, when can we bury him? And David gives this knowing glance to his right-hand man, James, and we'll know exactly what that Glance is all about later in this episode. He tells her that the ground is too hard, so they'll have to wait until the winter passes before they can actually bury him. By the way, this character, James, is played by an actor called Troy Baker, who plays Joel in the video game. So, lots of Easter eggs for the video game, obviously. After these parishioners leave, David and James have a conversation. James warns David that they're running out of food, maybe only a couple of weeks left of rations. And then there might have been some deer nearby spotted recently. David questions James as to whether he still has faith in him. It's been a rough six months, apparently. And we'll find out just how rough that is. Meanwhile, Ellie is with Joel. Joel's wound is infected, as we would have assumed, given the wound and how it was treated. By the way, this is right out of the game. There is this point in time where you suddenly are playing as Ellie. And Ellie needs to find medicine to cure Joel. Ellie heads out with a rifle to look for food. She's apparently become much more self-sufficient, perhaps here weeks on her own, plus all the coaching she had been getting from Joel recently. I would have actually said this could even be longer, but of course, Joel's so sick, he could have only been in this state for no more than a week or two. And given the fact that what we find out about that funeral ceremony we saw earlier in the episode couldn't have been a very long period of time between these two episodes. Ellie spots a deer, takes the shot, the way Joel told her to breathe, and then pull the trigger. She gets the deer, but it runs off. And now she has to track it through the snow. It's actually David and James who spot the deer and are about to take it quickly before the hunter turns up. But Ellie gets the drop on them. David is very impressed. He didn't even hear her approaching. Once again, she has improved greatly in this regard. David immediately starts making a pitch to her. We actually come from a bigger community. There are women, there are children there. David says all the right things here saying we can trade you part of the deer for any supplies you might need, or you can come join us. She just wants to know, do you have medicine? Medicine for when you have an infection. Ellie's very smart here, immediately brokers the deal. James goes and gets the antibiotics. David waits with her. If he comes back, they get half the deer. David tells James to head out, two bottles and a syringe. (laughs) James is surprised by all of this. David tells him, this isn't a code, just go and do it. David says it's going to be a while before James comes back. Let's go make a fire in a nearby shelter. Ellie tells him to drag the deer behind. Smart again, Ellie, very smart. Not so smart in the next scene, but smart here. They build a fire and David starts asking her about her history and talking about his own. We get David's backstory. He used to be a teacher. He was at the Pittsburgh QZ, which fell after Fedra and the Fireflies fought. This is back in 2017. So we're about five years past that point and they've been working their way across the country. Why they would go into the mountains of Colorado from Pittsburgh, not certain that this would be the place you'd want to spend your winter. But regardless, I assume they've been mostly traveling on foot. And he has been accruing a flock of followers ever since, little by little, a group that has grown. And he's become their leader in his description here by happenstance, but maybe not. He does seem to have some megamaniacal tendencies of his own perhaps being in the mountains is a good way to keep away from the raiders. He mentions that they hole up in different locations, and then the raiders show up, and then they have to move on to another location. Ellen mentions luck, and he mentions that there is no such thing as luck. Everything happens for a reason. He also mentions the fact that he found God after the apocalypse. That's when he decided that everything is part of a plan. And as proof of that, he mentions the fact of the happenstance of his meeting with her. Now, this is all either very interesting or very sloppy scripting. <laughs> Ellie has done a poor job of protecting her back. And I'm pretty sure that David had this setup of making the fire here conveniently in the center of the room. So it'd be pretty easy to sneak up behind her. And that's indeed what James has done. They easily had to drop on her. David asks James to not take the shot. And he tells James to give her the antibiotics instead. Now, a few interesting points here. He's ingratiating himself himself with her. If his overall goal was simply to grab her, this was a moment where he could have grabbed her by force. Instead, he lets her go with the medication, assuming that she'll be easy enough to track later on. But he's already seen that she has some pretty stealthy skills. But then again, he is a bit of a megalomaniac, so maybe he just thinks this is all part of the game. It's just a way for him to entertain himself, to have these stakes have this cat and mouse game. She really can't move very far distances in this terrible weather. So inevitably, she'll be holed up somewhere. He does potentially put all his men at risk. Imagine she's holed up somewhere and they are going door to door looking for her later. One or more of them could die and spoiler alert, that's exactly what ends up happening. So all of this is strange, either bad plotting or an examination of how far gone David has become, that everybody is just a plaything to him at this point. But before we realize just how psychopathic David is this is where the show could potentially have gone in the direction that I would have found more satisfying to me David brings up the fact that these men were out scavenging and one of them was attacked by a man who was with the little girl and that that man who also is a father and also had a daughter and had people depending on him is now dead because of this attack now we saw the attack and it does make us recontextualize things I actually want to go back almost and review that episode to see how aggressive it actually was. My personal opinion is that it is pretty clear that this was an assault on Joel because if you were not assaulting Joel, then why wouldn't you just ask questions? At the same time, these men did not seem to have guns. They attacked with sharpened sticks or handmade weapons. So were they a predatory party? We definitely know they were desperate. There was probably very bad intentions for these outsiders, but you could at this moment read that initial interaction as maybe not being as antagonistic as it was. And it does make me also question the behavior of those men at that time because they could have just lured these travelers back to their compound. And some of the same bad things would have eventually happened to them, theoretically. It would have been a mirror image to the Wyoming episode, another community in much more dire straits behaving in a much more dire way. So as I talk this out, it almost feels like this is more sloppy scripting more than anything else. Then again, people do act badly when they are confused or stressed out. But just for a moment here, and even more than that, actually, the show does at least allow us to contemplate this idea that maybe Joel, being always on the defensive, always being in psychopath mode, would be unable to see an opportunity, a handout. Is it a handout or a fist? I think he's always assuming it's a fist. And you think about even that sequence in Wyoming where if they hadn't been outgunned at that moment, would he have just tried to shoot his way out of that circumstance? David does indeed let her escape with the antibiotics. James is not happy about this. I mean, you have to assume antibiotics are pretty precious in their current circumstance, by the way. They could also easily track her. James could have just brought one man back with him and he could have been tracking Ellie this whole time. All of this seems like convenient plotting to me. I'm sorry. It's a little bit messy. I know what the show is trying to set up here, but it just doesn't quite work for me especially considering the dark turn the whole thing takes. If these people are this psychopathic, it seems like they would have been much more predatory from the the drop. And if not, if this is just happenstance, then they wouldn't be so one-dimensionally villainous by the end. That's my opinion anyway. Ellie gets back to Joel with the syringe and (laughs) jabs it right into the infected area. (laughs) He's obviously well far gone at this point because this is excruciating just to watch. It's funny that you know you watch somebody's brains eaten out of their head or something in a movie, and it's also over the top. You you don't empathize with the characters, but you know we've all probably had an infection, and the idea of someone jabbing a syringe directly into it <laughs> is something we can all empathize with. Joel, like I mentioned, is so far gone he barely he barely notices it. She gives him the injection, and then falls asleep on his chest. And of course, she is probably thinking about all the things that she just heard from David. They've been so single-mindedly concerned with their own well-being, what has been the collateral damage of their actions. Back at the compound, we see a large serving of meat being brought to the cafeteria workers. And more foreshadowing here, they ask, what is it? It's just venison, which is true this time. They actually have this half a deer, but their wary looks when the meat comes in tells you a lot that we don't even fully know at this moment. David returns to the compound. Everyone in the compound is buzzing about these strangers that have been located, and their resemblance to the attacker of Hannah's father. David tries to placate them all, but Hannah, the daughter, asks, why didn't you just kill them? He doesn't like this sass, and smacks her right out of her chair, as if that leering smile hadn't already clued us in to how creepy this guy is. This is yet just another indicator. Even her mom walks away, and nobody reacts. So apparently, this is pretty standard practice David does say that they're going to send out a search party to locate the man the next day. He also mentions to Hannah that you feel like you don't have a father, but you'll always have me. And that seems like almost a threat in this context. He has them all reciting a prayer, yet another method of control here, religion. And of course, the show has been exploring almost episode by episode, different means of controlling a population. And here we have religion as one. It's the next morning, Ellie has woken up and given Joel, yet another injection right in the stab wound of these antibiotics. I was wondering, where is the horse? Did the horse die or did they let it wander off? No, it's sitting in the garage like a parked car, (laughs) very patiently waiting for Ellie to come and check on it. Ellie brings it some snow for it to drink. What is it eating though? Is she just like picking twigs off of these bushes? There's not much to eat, I would assume at this point. The horse would be better off wandering around and finding its own grazing. While Ellie's out and about, she does notice that scouts are out and armed, David and James among them. She gives Joel a knife down in the basement after she returns back to the house. And she tells him, I'm going to try to lure them away. But if anyone comes down here, kill them. Joel really seems dead to the world at this point, but apparently (laughs) he can be called back into action. Ellie moves a cabinet in front of the door in the basement, pretty clever, rides out on the horseback with a pistol firing at the men. David wants her alive. James gets ahead of her and waits patiently for the horse to catch up, shoots the horse out from underneath her, and she gets thrown into the snow and knocked out. The men are about to kill her in retribution. Instead, David says, I told you I want her alive, tells two of the men to drag the horse back, obviously for more meat, a lot more meat, and tells the remaining men to go searching door to door until they find Joel. If they want vengeance so badly, go get it. One of the men pretty quickly comes upon the house where Joel and Ellie have been holding up, finds the basement door behind the cabinet, and by the time he gets down there, He finds the bloody mattress, but Joel nowhere to be found. But Joel's superhuman survival instincts kick in and he stabs this guy with the knife that Ellie had left for him right in the neck. Ellie finally wakes up. She's been imprisoned back at this resort where this colony is holed up. This is when David begins the seduction of Ellie. He seems to be offering a new home and a new place. I'll protect you. But there's something malicious here. I had hinted at, I I don't know where I picked this up from in the trailer for last week, but I'd hinted at the fact that there hasn't been any signs of sexual violence yet on the show up until this point. Inevitability, and, and inevitability, unfortunately, when you consider that we're at the end of humanity. And although it's never overtly stated, it is all over David's interactions here with Ellie. If we are to believe him here, and this is maybe another thing that I'm not completely convinced with in this episode, he sees her as some kind of a peer, that he is surrounded by these people who are simply just sheep, and he is a shepherd. This actor's name, by the way, ironically, Scott Shepherd. But Ellie is like him. She's a survivor. So he does identify something unique in her character. Once again, an interesting idea that is rarely played out here. If you are the type of person who can rally a group of believers around you, they by definition need you to play the part of the confident parental figure of of the sage, of the prophet. But that's just the performance. As time goes by, there are more and more and more of these people who are depending on you to play that role, you end up trapped in that very performance. So maybe he legitimately does see Ellie as something different. Maybe he's just a lecherous creep. But this is a topic worth investigating. And this show really does not dig deeply into any of the topics it raises this week. And I'll get into that when I give you my final thoughts on the episode. In parallel action, we see that Joel has gotten the drop on yet another one of these investigators. One is being currently tortured by Joel. Joel's already killed one of them. He had left the body out or dragged the body out to attract them. And then he got the drop on them as well. He stabs one in the kneecap and threatens to remove the kneecap completely. This is all grizzly stuff. He has to point out exactly where they are on the map. The first guy points him out. He says, you have to give me the right answer. And I'm going to double check with your friend. If he gives me a different answer, I'm going to kill you. He trusts his answer. He trusts that that location on the map is accurate. And then he kills him. After he kills his first friend, The second one says, why did you do that? I'm not going to cooperate with you at all now. And Joel says, that's okay. I believe what he told me. And then he beats this guy to death with a pipe. (laughs) Once again, the grim view of humanity in this show is kind of shocking to me, honestly. Joel is straight up psychopath here. And maybe this is the Joel that we never met, the Joel before working in the Boston QZ. He has reconnected with the version of himself himself before he lost his daughter, and Ellie has helped him reconnect with that version of himself. And now here he is, the pure predator that he was, just in survival instinct mode back before we've met him here in the show. Back at the lodge, Ellie is trying to escape from her fencing. This is either a kennel or maybe a storage area in the resort, or maybe it's even like a little police station within a resort. I'm not sure. I know like, at amusement parks, you have these little Areas where you can arrest people if they are drunk or disorderly, maybe it's something similar here at this resort. And as David is coming back to check on her, she notices something an ear, a disembodied ear laying on the ground under one of these drainage sinks. And she knows right away that these people have been eating people. I've been using eating people here as a metaphor on the show. (laughs) We are literally eating people now, people, everyone. And David mentions the whole thing they've run out of food. There's only a select few of them that know this has been going on. And this is not explained further. Are these people within the compound who are sick, who are dying, who've been selected to be fed to the others? Do they go out on scouting trips and then not come back? And they say, oh, I don't know. They must have died in the snow. And they were actually just maybe lesser wanted folks that are being dispatched. Are these outsiders? Like, was this what was going to happen to Joel and Ellie? They were out looking for people who were roaming to... Eat them? Or do they capture these bandits that come and try to ransack these compounds or ransack the city around them and they get captured and fed to the others? None of this is explained. We do know that people are being fed other people. He does have a rationale here, which, once again, I find it interesting to possibly explore this topic. He says, What was I supposed to do? Just let them die? I would say there are other options, by the way. Hey, when there's lots of deer in the spring, even if you don't anticipate a really, really rough winter, maybe you make some jerky. Maybe you keep some jerky just for the rough times. You need to warehouse some food for the bad times. And you got to assume it's not going to be just a one or two month supply you need. You're probably going to need some extra. And if you're running out of all that stuff, hey, maybe it's time to move out Maybe you don't want to sit in the mountains during the winter. Maybe you got like a spring compound closer to a river where there's some fish or something, and you can always come back to the lodge when the weather clears out. These are all suggestions. (laughs) Maybe a more democratic society would have come up with some of these ideas. And I would really be interested in knowing in the end, if you have to eat people, is there some decision-making process? And what is it? Maybe this is the same cult from Yellow Jackets. Who knows? Maybe there's a crossover coming between Yellow Jackets and this show. And then we get to this pretty fascinating moment here in the episode where David talks about how he made a discovery after this apocalypse, not through God, but understanding the world through the world of the Cordyceps. I've always had a violent heart.
1: And I struggled with it for a long time. But then the world ended and I was shown the truth. Right. By God. No by cordyceps. What does cordyceps do? Is it evil? No. It's fruitful. It multiplies. It feeds and protects its children. And it secures its future with violence, if it must. It loves. Why are you telling me all of this? Because you can handle it the way the others can't. They need God. They need heaven. They need they need a father. You don't. You're beyond that. I'm a shepherd surrounded by sheep, and all I want
0: is an equal, a friend. He wants an equal, and Ellie is that candidate. This is like grooming 101, it sounds like to me. Very troubling that this guy used to be a teacher. I don't know what kind of relationships he had with with his students. Now, there is something in Ellie that is violent and dangerous for sure. And I think we are supposed to see her as potentially a savior, but potentially as dangerous as she is useful. And it's interesting that we have seen multiple times throughout the course of this show her fascination and love for the grizzly, for the violent, for the grotesque. And last episode was kind of a corrective to that. It seemed like, for example, the pleasure she took in killing that mushroom zombie in that basement under the Cumberland Farms early in the season, it may be a revenge that she was getting for the other zombie that killed her close friend. And we see that there was probably some significant trauma that we're not even clued into yet that occurred as she watched her friend turn while she was spared. So it seemed like last week was almost an origin story for this twisted her twisted fixations you see her be truly predatory here and it gets worse from this moment on but it begins with her understanding this leering interest that he has in her using that to bring him close breaking his finger and trying to capture him and then reaching for the keys but he is able to keep the keys away from her and actually smacks her head into the cage And at this point, he turns on her and has decided that he is going to cut her up and serve her to the rest of his flock. Meanwhile, we see that Joel has arrived at the compound. The assumption here watching this show, of course, is that this is going to be Joel's big moment to rescue Ellie. As the creators of the show mentioned in the featurette that comes on afterwards, they wanted none of that. Joel starts investigating. He's followed this blood trail into one of these lodges. The blood trail from the horse seems to be some kind of storage where they had canoes and other recreational equipment for the resort. He finds the horse, but of course he finds some bodies also wrapped in saran wrap, mostly decapitated, hanging from hooks. And of course we cut from there directly back to David and now James coming to butcher Ellie, just as they're about to attack. This all happens very, very quickly. They pull her out from the gate, pin her down on the table. They have a cleaver, a large cleaver. And this is when Ellie uses her infection as a tool mentions that I've been bit. David doesn't believe this, but James is a little wary of this. She says, go ahead, check my arm. And of course they see the bite and they see the tendrils growing under her skin. And she tells David, you are now infected as well. He goes, I don't believe it. You would have turned by now. And she uses this moment of indecision to grab the cleaver and chop directly into James's throat. James hits the ground. Ellie makes her escape and David is in hot pursuit, does not check in on James at all, but I think it's pretty clear he's got no chance of surviving this. Ellie heads out to one of the the bar area of the resort, grabs one of the logs that is in the fireplace as a weapon. David is hot in pursuit and is in straight up villain mode here. He's brought the cleaver from the other room. She throws this log at him and it catches the curtain, which starts to go up in flames. David completely ignores it. And within less than a minute, <laughs> this is extremely dry wood, or this is extremely cheesy plotting here, but this thing goes up. It's incredible. The whole place is consumed in flames within minutes, perhaps one minute. We see David stalking her. She's hiding behind some piece of furniture. We see the sign when we are all in need, he shall provide. Ironically, they're about to be engulfed in flames. David still refuses to believe that she's infected. No one who's infected fights this hard to live, he says. He is pretty fascinated here. He wants to know, how did you survive? How did you do it? Is there a secret or are you just so special? And as I mentioned, he is in straight up creep mode here. He doesn't care if she has some magical elixir to this fungus or not. He just wants to be a straight on monster here. There's this is He's lost any kind of ambiguity at this point in the show. She sneaks up behind him as he's monologuing, stabs him pretty badly. He knocks her down. Regardless, even though he's still relentlessly pursuing her, even though everything's burning down around him, he's losing everything at this moment. And once again, despite losing everything, it's more important right now, straight up cheesy villainous cliches, he'll let this whole place burn to the ground, he'll lose everything he's worked up to towards this point, just to get the upper hand with this girl. I don't know why that would be the case. And allows her to grab this cleaver as he continues to monologue, and she gets A good hit on him, knocks him over, and then, of course, goes at him over and over and over again. And in some ways, it feels like this is the point the show's been coming to this whole entire time that Ellie has to get to this point where she's lost all of her humanity. Is this the origin story of this grimmer, grislier version of Ellie? Or maybe, just maybe, there is still a chance at redemption here. She escapes from the burning lodge right into the arms of Joel, and she just collapses, and he calls her baby girl something we've not heard him say since he was with his daughter. He gives her one of his coats and they walk off together yet once again. But Ellie is transformed. She's traumatized in the way we have not seen her before. She's tried to keep this emotional distance and this sartorial wit, joking, pretending that nothing really gets to her. Although we know deep down inside, she's affected by all of this, but this is the first time that she can't even pretend to hide her trauma. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> It's me.
1: It's me. It's okay, baby. It's okay. It's okay, baby girl. I got you. I
0: got you. All right. So I've hinted during this entire review some significant. I have with this particular episode. I think people are going to love this episode. It's probably what they come to the show for. The whole sequence at the end is thrilling. It's very suspenseful. It's very exciting to watch. But maybe I'm putting my finger on it just now at this particular moment. In the game, so many of these side characters, for example, the villains in Kansas City, and of course, these characters here. I have not played the game, but this is from my research about it. These characters really are not fleshed out. They simply are the bad guys, and you have to kill them to move on to the next level. And the show has attempted, I think, to expound on these people, to show more about the different ways these different groups of people are trying to survive. And honestly, once again, this might just be expectations from HBO's reputation at providing grade A content, that there's an opportunity here to explore all these themes in fascinating detail. These are the different mechanisms of survival are you like Bill and Frank who hole up together? Are you the Fedra agents who believe in law and order above all else? Are you the Fireflies who are these revolutionaries, but potentially don't have a mechanism of control once you liberate a city, for example, and then the downfall that comes from there? Are you these vigilantes in Kansas City with no allegiance to anyone, eventually just lead to the full societal collapse? And even the folks who live up in Jackson, Wyoming, who've created this utopian society, but now need to keep everybody out out of fear of losing what they have, understandably, considering that every other method has failed. And now you have David here, literally a false prophet, someone who has used God to acquire a following, but really is just using this society's need for some kind of religious belief and inspiration to potentially sexually assault some of these girls. When his true religion basically ends up being the religion of the cordyceps, which honestly seems to be almost the organizing principle of this show that in the end, we're all just like the cordyceps, just coming up with any excuse to survive. All of these ideas, by the way, I'm not just being negative about these different philosophies. I want these philosophies to be explored. I feel like they are raised in the show and then not explored significantly significantly. And I also feel like there is no reason, just with a few more lines of dialogue that we see, David could be more nuanced in his own characterization. He becomes a one-dimensional killer at the end of this show. And the simple fact is even the bad guys in the real world, I mean, think they're the good guys. So we need to understand what drives somebody. They're not just these villains who are just like, I can't wait to do more villainy tomorrow. There's gotta be some organizing principle and I just feel like the show raises these things and says one or two sentences about, and this is why I, I ended up the way I am, but really doesn't delve into it in ways that I find convincing. I feel like the show hasn't done enough about that uh, of that. I do feel like the show, when it does try to humanize these characters, it does a good job. I feel like Ellie and Joel, this is very video game, by the way, that Ellie and Joel really have these robust... Interactions. They have nuance to their characters. They've been bad guys. They've been good guys. They have humor. They have more than just a one dimensional role in the plot. But they are the only ones. These side characters do not get fleshed out. And I think that that is a real limitation. Maybe it's because the source material is a video game. And in a video game, you really are just following the protagonist. And they're the only ones that get fleshed out. But they could have done that. They've gone out of their way to create these. Characters and try to define their motivations. And for example, I think they did a pretty good job with Catherine in Kansas City, the Melanie Linsky character, or Kathleen, I forget her name. But I feel here this was really, honestly, such a generic villain. And by the way, could have been a really, really fascinating character. I didn't buy it. I really didn't buy almost any of this. I also didn't buy. Just some of the decisions that were made, I didn't buy how quickly the lodge burns down. Like Even that is just so cheesy. It just, I didn't buy it. So yeah, I know people are going to love this episode. I pretty much didn't like it. And by the way, coming off of a a strong episode last week, but not only that, feeling at moments like earlier in the episode that, oh, here's a chance for the show to really deal with the ambiguities in it. And it's as if the show said, Joel and Ellie may have been feeling some ambiguity, feeling some ambiguity in the recent episodes. But no, no, no. Put your guard down for one second and these people will literally now (laughs) literally eat you. (laughs) Anyway, I am very curious to see how I land on the finale to get a feel for whether I would even honestly recommend the show or not, despite some amazing production, great performance, especially from Pedro Pascal, for example, great performance there. But I'm still... Torn on whether I would even recommend this, to be honest. And I come back to the idea that what has this show, despite this truly beautiful production, what has this show added to the post-apocalyptic or zombie genre other than the zombies? The zombies are different. They're unique. They have their own rules. The cordyceps concept is very interesting, fun as a zombie motif, as a concept. But what does it tell me about human nature or about the experience of this world that The Walking Dead hasn't told me already? That, to a very different extent, The Hunger Games or Station 11 or the Romero zombie films or the 28 Weeks Later, for example, not necessarily 28 Days Later, but the 28 Weeks Later sequel touches on a lot of the same themes here. And what do I get from this that is different from those? I still have to tell you I don't know if I can say what is unique here. So yeah, I am on the fence on this whole show. I've been kind of holding my tongue a little bit, enjoyed the last two episodes very much. Most of the episodes individually, I would actually approve of. But like I said, when we get to the end and it remains to be seen, maybe I turn around on the finale because I'm not completely negative on the show. Maybe I need to get to the end and then revisit my feelings. (laughs) That all remains to be seen.
1: uh,
0: All right, so here, completely apropos of nothing other than the fact that the Oscars are coming around, if you're still hanging in there with me, if you didn't tune out because I gave this show a negative review, a completely separate topic, I have now seen all 10 Oscar-nominated films. And I wanted to tell you my ranking of those 10 films and more importantly for you all out there where you can watch them. So a couple of caveats here. I am going to save my number one and my number 10 movies for the end, my highest rated and lowest rated titles, because I might want to talk about them in a little more detail. And also because to be totally honest, the gap in my opinion between my number two title and my number nine title is relatively small. I could almost interchange so many of these titles. But I just as an exercise, just for fun, for my own entertainment, I'm going to try to rank them. And lastly, this is not my top 10 list. I used to watch a lot more movies when I was younger. I would make a top 10 list. My top 10 list would rarely have any overlap, or not rarely, but occasionally only have overlap with the films that were actually nominated for Best Picture. I do not get enough time now that I'm a parent, honestly, mostly, to see as many films as I used to. So I'm simply ranking these. I'm not saying these are my 10 favorite movies of the year, just to be clear. (laughs) Definitely not, by the way. Okay. So We'll get to number one later, but my number two. My number two movie, and this is going to be controversial right off the top, I am not saying this is the best movie of the year as far as the screenplay. I'm not saying this is the very best movie as far as character development. I'm just talking about the experience of seeing this in the movie theater. And by the way, this is kind of what's fun about this exercise and what is complicated about this very idea of saying best movie. It's like saying best painting. How do you say that this is the best painting, which could be very detailed, very literal, very almost photorealistic, and then say, well, here's a completely abstract painting and put them next to each other and say, this one is better than that one. You have to judge them on such completely different terms. So to that point, my number two, Movie of the year from this list, (laughs) all those caveats in place, is Avatar The Way of Water. It's not the best script. It doesn't have the best performances. It's not going to have the most resonant plot, although I did find the plot totally entertaining. It's just extraordinarily well made from the point of view of something that's so rare nowadays. The action is not just arbitrarily tacked on, the action is the payoff to the plot. People will complain that other than the action, the plot is not that interesting. The plot and the action are the same thing. And it is so rare in action movies nowadays where the payoff is in the action sequences themselves. We are so used to watching those MCU films where there's a giant tacton battle at the end, which you can literally tune out. And then someone will tell you what the stakes for the next movie are, where this is everything that is set up earlier in the film pays off in that giant action sequence at the end. It's very classic filmmaking. It's what Spielberg. And Cameron have done so well in their action films. And here is Cameron really at top of his game as far as the actions goes. And of course, the incredible technology, this completely immersive. I saw it in 3D. Highly recommend see this in 3D, in IMAX, on a very bright screen. The images are absolutely jaw-dropping. And whereas 3D did not take off after the Avatar film, we now have tens of millions of people out there who own augmented reality headgear or virtual reality headgear. And I look at the middle sequences of this film, and if anything, I believe 10 years from now, 15 years from now, this is a blueprint for these kind of immersive worlds that we will be interacting with, and Cameron, once again, leading the way. And this is going to be a touchstone for all of that. So for all those reasons, I think it's going to be technologically important. I find it very entertaining, very thrilling. Action sequences are incredible, beautiful to look at. I just think, as an experience, it's a lot of fun. Is it an amusement park ride more than a movie? Absolutely. I don't care. I think it's definitely worth seeing and seeing in a theater. And that is still in movie theaters and is coming to Disney Plus. They have had a release date scheduled for Disney Plus. I think it's still over a month away. But once again, I've seen it in two dimensions. It still is very thrilling, by the way. But I think that so much of my awe for the artistry of the film is tied into just the incredible 3D, which makes the first Avatar film look like nothing compared to how impressive the 3D is in this film. So much more immersive. So do check it out while it's still in theaters. I think it's going to add to the experience. My number three, The Banshees of Inishiran. This features four incredible performances. The reason this thing ranks so highly for me, first of all, written and directed by playwright Martin McDonough who's worked with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson before in in Bruges, and has won Academy Awards in the past as well with three billboards outside Ebbing's, Missouri. And this is my favorite of his films, so that's the first thing. I've not been a huge fan of of McDonough up until now. His performative machoism seems a little contrived to me, and maybe that's the point, but it's a little too one-note in general for me. But this film, which is about how small differences can lead to lifelong vendettas in the context of, for example, the Irish War for Independence, which is raging just off the coast of this fictional island in this film. But it's not only about that, it's about growing older and wanting to define a life of meaning instead of just passing your time pleasantly with your friend, because that's the person you grew up standing next to. It's about this kind of killing you with kindness, this version of passive aggressiveness that if I just act nice to you all the time, that you just have to be nice to me in return, and that the kind of oppressiveness that that leads to, and paralleling that between these two different characters, Kerry Condon and Brendan Gleeson, being pursued by these two very parallel and yet very different men, Colin Farrell and Barry Keegan, all four of these performances are absolutely incredible. And not only does it deal with some very, very deep issues about growing older, about making meaning in your life, of your life, about being trapped in your life circumstances, as grim and dark as some of the fates of some of the characters, it's also hilariously funny. This is an entertaining and strange film. And for me, Martin McDonough's best film. And it's available on HBO Max, or you can rent it on Amazon Prime or Apple TV or Vudu or anywhere else you rent your movies if you don't happen to have HBO Max. That's our number three. Number four, Top Gun Maverick. So this movie is maybe the least ambitious of all the films on this list and still ranks this high up. Why? Because it is just executing at such a high level. (laughs) The one thing I have against this film is this absolutely one of the most bizarre lovemaking scenes I've ever seen (laughs) in my life. It is noteworthy for being so absolutely... (laughs) Weird and awkward and terrible, honestly, like one of the worst love scenes I've seen in quite some time. Aside from that, it is an incredibly well-made action film. It speaks to how convoluted, for example, the MCU as its box office is starting to trail off. People are getting tired of having to watch 18 movies to get a payoff. Here's a movie that basically says: here's what the action sequence is going to be at the end of the film. We are going to rehearse it a hundred times before the end of the film. So when that day comes, everybody in the audience knows exactly what needs to happen. As if this is a heist movie or something, we can all see how it could potentially go wrong. And of course, that's our stakes there at the end of the film. Almost certainly the least ambitious film on this list, and yet executes at such a high level. If you want to find some subtext in here, and I'll say that there definitely is intentional, we have the subtext of Tom Cruise's actual career. There's literally a piece of dialogue where Ed Harris asks like what happened to your life you're you're still doing the same thing 35 years later wink wink nudge nudge Tom Cruise at one point looked like he was going to have a very varied type of film career he was trying to make dramas he made some excellent had some excellent performances in movies like Magnolia in Eyes Wide Shut even in romantic comedies even in legal thrillers and of course maybe his most popular film ever in Rain Man playing maybe the better role alongside Dustin Hoffman. So these roles are very varied. You think about him in The Color of Money. And then at some point in his career, he just started making movies where every single film, the selling point was him risking his life, doing some kind of stunts, flying his own planes, hanging off of rockets, whatever he needed to do to entertain an audience. Here he is 35 years later, still doing the same thing. And he literally says, that's a mystery for the ages as to how he ended up in this circumstance. So in a way, I feel like maybe, just maybe, this is him coming full circle on his career. Supposedly, these are the last two. We have a a Mission Impossible film coming out this year, and another one coming out next year. And that two-parter is supposed to be the end of that series. He's supposed to make a film in space also. Potentially, that one's still on the agenda. But maybe after this batch of two or three films, this is maybe his farewell tour to being the young action hero, Tom Cruise. And maybe he will now move on to other films like Collateral. Hey, another one just remembered. Let's do something different. Let's let this guy end his career playing interesting non-superhero characters. <laughs> and I do hope that maybe this is his way of winking at the audience and saying, please <laughs> let me move on. So if you're looking for subtext, there are some. But beyond that, it is a very, very entertaining and rewatchable and simple story and I say that to its credit. That's our number four. Our number five. Now, this one is possibly the film that will move up the highest in rankings, or maybe I'll forget it someday. I have a feeling, if anything, it's going to climb, and this film is Tar. It's available on Peacock. Oh, if I forgot to mention, Top Gun Maverick, available on Paramount+, Plus. also available to rent through your usual services. My number five, the movie Tar, available on Peacock to stream or rentable through all the usual platforms. Now, this film is a long and sprawling story, incredibly detailed. So many people believe that this is based on a a real person. Not only is this something that gets Googled all the time, I've literally had conversations with the same person multiple times telling them, no, this is not based on an actual person. And it's pretty amazing because Todd Field, who wrote and directed this film, was not familiar with this world at all. Beforehand was handed a specialist and wrote this script and made this film, which feels so detailed, so believable in every possible way. And of course, features one of the absolute performances of the year, maybe of the decade, Kate Blanchett, who's such a great performer in general, and giving almost certainly the best performance of her career in this incredible film, which I think is so watchable, even though it is utterly inscrutable simultaneously. Her performance is incredible. The world it creates, it is this incredibly detailed view of being a conductor in this modern world represented here in the film. The music is great, but it's not the focus of the film. Really, it's about this woman and her ego and the way she abuses her power. But it's not only about that also. It is a ghost story. It is a satire on this type of film. It is a metaphor for Todd Field making a film. You have this conductor, Who is someone who simply orchestrates the orchestra, tells the orchestra, you need to be a little faster. You need to be a little slower. You need to be a little louder. The way she describes her own work is that she provides the experience to the audience. She's the one who's listening to everybody at once, which is what a director does. A director is the one who vets all the work that everybody else is doing to achieve the final sound, the final image, the final story that is being presented to the audience. So it's a metaphor for that creative process, but it's also about the comeuppance that comes with the Me Too movement. But by making this a woman who's sexually harassing other women, it complicates our view of that as well. It gives us no easy answers. It simply puts us in the midst of it. It has a darkly hilarious punchline of a finale. There are theories that chunks of this film don't even really happen, and people are parsing out. The color schemes, the imagery between one and another, the pacing, the logistics of certain scenes, and whether these are some kind of death dream that we're seeing in some cases, or we're in a fugue state of some kind. And there's definitely elements where it's at one point in the film, probably for a 15, 20 minute stretch, it feels like it becomes a straight up horror movie. There are people who disappear from the screen. There are people who could be ghosts that are haunting our protagonist. The film is doing all these things at the same time. And- The reason it's here in the middle of my list is because it is such a unique experience, but its strengths are the same things that are its weaknesses. So it's very hard for me to judge where I should put this on the list. Its inscrutability is what makes it so utterly fascinating, but then is it just perhaps not thought out enough? And I've only seen the film once, so maybe if I see it a few more times, I would come up with a more solid consensus. But since I'm confused as to whether I want to overrate this film or underrate it, I have it here in the middle. I'm kind of cheating. I'm not making a choice. So I just stuck it in the middle here. But it is possibly the film that I think will climb the most in my estimation over time. And once again, it's available on Peacock. It's called Tar. Where are we now? Six, my number six, just premiered on Hulu this very week. It is Triangle of Sadness, directed by Ruben Osterland, who wins, I think, his second Palmed Ore at the Cannes Film Festival for this satire of the modern power structure of the world where you have these extremely, extremely rich people in the estimation of this filmmaker and of this film itself are completely clueless as to the pragmatic running of the world. And then the people who basically do the work, the labor force, and how there's this huge distance between the people who do things and the people who own things simply because they either stumbled into it or they inherited this position of power. Set on board of a ship, which is a metaphor for society itself, And there is a comedic centerpiece where there is vomit and shit flying all over the screen because the lunatics are running the asylum. These people who have no clue as to the pragmatic, the logistics of anything, are putting their foot down and telling everybody else how to do their work based on their own single minded view of themselves. And of course, leads to disaster. But it's not only about that, it's about gender dynamics, it's about how youth is a currency to the wealthy as you see these models who are also on this cruise because they're pretty. <laughs> we need some pretty people on the boat. That's why, along with alongside these millionaires and billionaires. And then of course, where the film ends up at the end, which I once again don't want to spoil because it was a surprise to me. But what happens when you're in a situation where all the money, basically money no longer exists, money doesn't exist, then how much value do these rich people actually have? Anyway, all of this is very on the nose. I can understand why people found this film potentially tedious But I found it to be pretty funny. Everybody, whether it's the fashion industry, whether it is these Russian oligarchs, all the people who get poked fun at here, all deserve it. (laughs) They're all a bunch of assholes. So I don't mind them being laughed at. It's completely on the nose. It's completely obvious. But I thought it was funny. Uh, Your mileage may vary. So it ends up here at number six on my list. Not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, but an entertaining one. You got to not have a problem with some gross-out humor, though. My number seven, available on Netflix exclusively, All's Quiet on the Western Front. This is as close to an anti-war movie as a war movie can be. There is elements of it that are still somewhat cliched, but there are moments that are utterly infuriating. This is during takes place during World War One, based on the classic World War One novel. These Germans refuse to sign this peace treaty, even though they're the ones who are invading. There's a placard that comes up at the end of the film reminding us of the fact that over 10 million people died during this war where the frontier line barely moved, sometimes hundreds of yards, and it was costing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives per month at the exact same time, by the way, not referenced here in the film, that the Spanish flu is killing tens of millions of people around the world. So talk about apocalyptic futures. This must have felt truly apocalyptic back at this time in history. And the film really captures that to a great extent. A lot of the battle sequences, as grim and terrible as they are, truly, the film goes out of its way to not glamorize war, something that is very hard to do in a film, but still feels a little samey, a little bit like I've seen a lot of this before. Nonetheless, this is maybe one of the absolute most relevant films of the year. It does definitely echo the stupidity of the war that's happening right now in the Ukraine, where the Russians are losing tens of thousands of their own to move a frontier a mile or two, and then unable to hold it, of course. So it's this complete futility that, nonetheless, these men will just throw these boys' bodies into this furnace without a second thought, just for pure ego. And honestly, just check out the first 10 or 15 minutes of this film. It is such an incredible little short film, just showing almost wordlessly, the mill that's created, these men are sent to slaughter. Their uniforms are stripped of their bodies. Giant sacks, heavy sacks of the clothing is so heavy, trains full of just their uniforms, which are then washed and then put onto new soldiers. The clothing that these soldiers are dressed in is of higher value to these warmongers. than the boys who are dying in the war. Like I said, just check out the first half hour of this film, if nothing else, although it is still very good. But that first half hour is truly poignant, available on Netflix, as I mentioned. Exceptionally well-made film, only down the list because it feels a little redundant to me compared to other similar war films we've seen. We see so many of these, unfortunately, still a necessary message. And also some of the designs are a little strange. This score, this like droning contemporary score, I can understand how it differentiates it from other similar films but it also kind of took me out a little bit from the experience all right we're getting close to the bottom here i think i might have missed one here or miscounted somewhere in here but down at my number eight i'd say i'm just going to put these in a tie because i really can't decide which way i want to go with them two extremely different films one of them is the Fabelmans, steven spielberg's new film a film i had very little interest in seeing there were so many films that came out this year about filmmakers talking about why they love making films which not only does every filmmaker eventually have to make this, I think it was because of the pandemic, people remembering like, oh, remember the magic of the movies? Remember everybody? Don't you love the movies? I understand everybody wanting to re-embrace this motif and remind themselves and remind everyone out there why films are so magical. But honestly, I've seen so many of these, I just was not interested in seeing another one. And then I finally saw it just to be a And hey, guess what, everybody? Steven Spielberg can really make a great movie. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because every single time, you know, some of the Spielberg's movies recently, I line up immediately to see them. Some of them, they're barely in my radar, like West Side Story last year, barely made my radar, but I'm like, all right, all right, I'll watch it. It's available on HBO Max. Okay, okay, I'll watch it. And I loved it. I loved it. And I don't like musicals. And Spielberg, of course, as if I needed to be reminded again just one year after ignoring West Side story and then loving it in when I finally saw it. Here I am again, ignoring the fablemans and then of course, loving it in the end. This is available to rent uh, only through all the standard places. I don't know where it's going to end up streaming maybe on HBO Max. that's a guess honestly, I don't know. but currently still rentable through all the usual suspects. This is an extremely literal reimagining of Spielberg's youth first in New Jersey, then in Ohio, I believe, before finally moving to California. His dad worked for IBM, I believe it was. He was a computer scientist and an innovator at the time. And it's the story of the dissolution of that marriage and Spielberg's upbringing and simultaneously him discovering the power and the love for filmmaking. And I would say that the performances of the kids in this film are truly exceptional. These kids just do such a great job. I found the Michelle Williams and Paul Dano performances a little one note. I've heard that these are like, spot-on imitations of Spielberg's actual parents. But for me, just watching the performances, it was a little one-note. However, it didn't detract from the film because I felt like that was kind of the point that it is telling you this is a film about this experience. It's not the experience. It's a film about it. And I won't give it away here because it's a pretty clever joke in the film. The very, very last shot of the film is just this wink directly at the audience and I loved even that, all that is to say, it's just about that. It's just about finding something you love, sticking to your guns. It's exceptionally well-made. The star of the show here is Spielberg as a director, absolutely the star of the show here. Given the storyline, this really should be his story, should be where he shines, and he does. And that's all I could say about it. Extremely entertaining. That takes me down to this tie for number eight, which is Women Talking, directed by Sarah Polly, and just finally available now to rent at home and still playing in theaters. I don't know where it's going to end up streaming. It's still a little early to know that. It is rentable at Apple, Google, Amazon, Vudu, etc. And this film features a truly stacked cast of Claire Foy, Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivy giving an incredible performance, Frances McDormand in a small role, although she's a producer on the film as well, and Ben Wishaw, written and directed by Sarah Polly, got a nomination for the screenplay, but not as director, unfortunately, for best adapted screenplay, adapted from a novel as well. This story is about a bunch of women talking. They live in this Mennonite community, and it turns out the women have been being drugged and raped. And this is based on a true story, a Mennonite community that migrated, although in the movie, they're still in the United States, but migrated from the United States to Central America. Eventually they moved, maybe not dissimilarly from the Last of Us conversation where we have this moving religious community. And I think this is revealed pretty early in the film, but I would say it is a little bit of a surprise. I won't go into details as to the time period that the film is taking place in. As you're watching the film, you feel that this is a period piece and it is, but you probably have an assumption as to what that time period actually is. And then things start to reveal themselves slowly over the course of the first third of the film, let's say, when we finally realize, oh, there's a historical reference, and we suddenly realize exactly when we are. And that is surprising because it's almost as if the film is saying that these unfortunately are conditions that women have been dealing with for hundreds of years, and that is what is being played out there subtly in this ongoing revelation or this changing target of what our expectations of the time period are the film is beautiful to look at it's really uses its scenery well although really and this is my ding on the film it does feel like it easily could have been a stage play although it does expand the world somewhat with some of these really beautiful landscapes but in general it is a little stage bound i would say the performances are a little variable. I think all the women give really strong performances, but Judith Ivy gives a truly great performance here, I think. Not nominated. None of the women, I think, are nominated, which is understandable because it's such a large number of women, the ones I've mentioned, plus even more, who all just give this stand performance. And I'm sure they all split each other's vote. But the film is uh, kind of a fascinating look at almost the history of women's rights, because you have these women who are saying, should we stay in the community? Should we stay here and fight? Should we forgive the men? Because in this culture, if you don't forgive the men, you may not get passage to heaven. So there is this idea of, do we forgive these people who have violated us? Do we stay? Do we leave? If we leave, do we take the children? Do we leave the boys? Do we take the boys? And in a way, these conversations are as if we're kind of compacting centuries of women's rights into these individual conversations. And they are very interesting. The dynamics that are playing out there are truly fascinating because some of these women, they may be angry. They may want to fight, but how they fight is different. The ones who want to leave, want to leave for different reasons, different factions fighting for supposedly the same thing, but maybe not on the same side. So all of this is really interestingly done. Like I said, my critiques, it's a little stage bound. Some of the dialogue is so on the nose, but it's on the nose, but you sit there and shake your head and go like, oh yeah, that's a good point, (laughs) even as it is maybe a little pedantic. And I would say it's a little disappointing for me, only in the fact that this is written by Sarah Polly. And it's a strong film, by the way. This is still a film I definitely recommend. And yet, certainly, in my opinion, the weakest of her films, even Take This Waltz featuring two of the stars of the previous film, The Fable Mins, also in a romantic relationship, Seth Rogen and Michelle Williams. Even that film, which is extremely flawed, was still really surprising to me and just an unusual way to tell its story. So definitely check that out as well. It's a very surprising romance. Away From Her, a film about Alzheimer's disease and being the spouse who's losing your spouse to Alzheimer's, and especially stories we tell a documentary about her very complicated relationship with her mother and her surviving father. Once again, feels somewhat like The Fableman's in its themes and concerns. Please do track down Sarah Polly's work. She's also an actress. She's been a very good actress. She's done very little acting in the past few years, primarily focused on filmmaking. All of her films exceptional, I would say. This one, a disappointment for me, only in comparison to how exceptional her work has been before. I still think this is a very important film. I still think it's a very well-performed film. These actresses are all doing great work and it's relevant and important and do track down the true story that it's referenced to, but do watch the movie first because you know you don't want to kind of spoil some of these things I described. For all those reasons, it's recommended. Even though I have it all the way down here at the bottom of my list, near the bottom of my list, it's just because these other films were stronger, in my opinion, or more successful at what they were trying to do, but still a strong film despite its flaws. And that is not available to stream, but available to rent. All right. now So now my number one, I kind of skipped it at the very beginning. Everything, everywhere, all at once. This is probably going to win Best Picture. I'm not going to go too far into why I like it so much. I have a review for the film already in this feed. I talked about it for about 20 minutes. I'll just let you know that it's available on Paramount Plus and on Showtime. So easy to stream. You can also rent it through all the usual suspects it's back in movie theaters. I do recommend seeing it in a theater. This is a film that was too much. I'm not the type of film that likes this kind of maximalist filmmaking. And for the first half hour of this film, I was thinking, hmm, maybe I'm not actually going to vibe with this. But I kind of gave in. And I think if I wasn't in a movie theater, I wouldn't have allowed myself to let my guard down and receive the really incredible, powerful message that this film had. I also saw it, I think, probably one week after the Ukrainian invasion, maybe two weeks afterwards, this is when it was still in expansion. I was just brought to tears, literally, in the theater. One of the messages, one of the messages it has in it is this idea of we are all living on this planet together. All we need to do is to acknowledge someone else's humanity and let them live their lives, basically. And I was seeing this in the context of this war that had broken out, and it just floored me. It just devastated me. But I've seen it since at home as well it still moves me. So I would say that it wasn't just the experience of seeing in the theater or just the experience of that moment in history. But the film is not only about that, it is about accepting our children and our loved ones as they are. It's about staying engaged in your marriage. It's about the experience of being an immigrant. And just in that one regard, it made me think about my parents are immigrants and it made me think about their immigrant immigrant experience. The alternate history that they had by coming to this country and living this life and we have not always gotten along but it does minimally make me appreciate where they came from they're also the type of parents their way of saying i love you is to say i think you're getting fat <laughs> so i did uh, i did appreciate that as well it's about everything <laughs> it really is it's about all of existence it's it, it also aligns itself very closely with my buddhist philosophy personal <laughs> buddhist philosophy not a uh, officially that In the end, even the most famous person on earth right now will be a footnote to history in 50 or 75 years and will be forgotten in 100 years or so. That fact that we are infinitesimally small in the eyes of the cosmos is not something to be afraid of. It's something that is liberating because all we can do in the end is live our lives and let other people live their lives. And that very much is the philosophy of this film. And of course, that leaves my number 10. Now, I have liked every single film on my list from one through nine. But honestly, I do not like the 10th nominated film, Elvis. All right, first I'm going to tell you the positives. I do think that, as is usually the case with Baz Luhrmann's films, a director that I don't in generally appreciate, by the way, although I do, I am a fan of his adaptation of The Great Gatsby, but in general, not a huge fan of his work. But I am a fan of Austin Butler's performance as Elvis. I also like some of the technical shenanigans of intercutting these different images. It doesn't look like the original footage, but I'm okay with that. And you have to assume there was a certain heightened feeling to Elvis back in that time, seeing him that in that time. And it captures the spirit, I would assume, of being of a certain age, being a teenage girl specifically, but just a teenager in general, and what this represented, what a change this was to pop culture. Austin Butler, as I mentioned, great in the role, sings himself, really did everything he could to be this Elvis character. The costumes are beautiful. Production values in general, top notch. Okay. That's the positive I have to say. And by the way, Austin Butler being nominated, not a problem with that, in my opinion. The costume design, the cinematography, I'm fine with all that. Maybe not a huge fan of the editing in general. There's a lot of editing. I'm just saying it's not necessarily good or not. Most of these technical awards, I'm fine with. But- Best film? Oh my God, not best film. And let me just touch on the things that I do not like in this film at all. Number one, I say this as someone who 90% of the time is completely on board with Tom Hanks. The Tom Hanks character, maybe more than anything else, is disastrous to this film, Like utterly disastrous. Every time he opens his mouth and he is narrating it, he has this absolutely terrible accent. He's buried in makeup. Tom Hanks is one of the most recognizable actors in the world. He's not a character actor. That is not what he does. He's not one of these chameleons that I'm like, I didn't even know that was Tilda Swinton in that movie. I didn't even recognize her. That is not Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks in all his movies. Even in Forrest Gump, he's mostly Tom Hanks, a variation, an alternate history of Tom Hanks. And this character is a disaster, a total disaster. And he's on screen way too much. Even when he's not on screen, he's narrating. Every time you hear his voice, every time you see him on screen, it derails the entire film. And that is most of the film. Only problem number one. Problem number two, I would say in general, I'm not a huge fan of Baz's style, but I think about his crazy 20, first 20 minutes of like Moulin Rouge or something and even though I, I do not like that, it's like it's nauseating and excruciating to me to watch that. It is still a stylistic choice choice, and it is cramming storytelling into your eyeballs. It serves a purpose. Whether I like it or not, it serves a purpose. Even by his standards, this is pretty subdued. It's almost just a traditional rock and roll biopic. And worse than that, it is absolutely generic a rock and roll biopic as you can make. It hits every single beat that we've already heard in every single other rock and roll biopic. And then on top of all of that, this question I always ask myself after I watch something, what was the purpose purpose of that? This story manipulates actual factual elements of Elvis's story and to what end. It wants to tell this story in which Tom Hanks' character, Tom Parker, is the villain, has completely strangled... Elvis in his career has trapped him working incessantly. Not only is it a completely cliched version of telling this story, it's not really backed up by history, and it's just not interesting. Instead, this is my version of it, so obviously it's just my personal opinion, but I think about the Elvis character and so many other of these tragic rock and roll figures Who have these personal demons who desperately try to achieve fame. And then once they have it, it's never enough. It's that need, that need for more and more and more, and the fact that it's never enough. And also, this need that Colonel Tom Parker had that no matter how much success he had, no matter how much money he had, he always needed more. And an addict who was a workaholic and a gambler. And you think about Elvis, who was a womanizer and addicted to food, addicted to drugs, addicted to fame. And the idea of these two relentless appetites running into each other and destroying each other in the end is a fascinating story, which is unexplored here. It's not even an interesting take on it. I'm not saying that my version of it is the only story to tell, but at least it's a story to tell. Instead of this completely generic story that manipulates historical facts to come up with a narrative and that narrative is as utterly generic as it can possibly be. People have made this analogy before. You can watch Walk Hard, the satire of rock and roll biopics, and it literally has all the same plot beats that the Elvis film has, which is shocking that after all this time, that's as good as you can do is to copy a satire of a biopic. It's it's less original than the Dewey Cox story, uh, uh, Walk Hard, which tracked that down. That is absolutely hilarious. Elvis doesn't even work as a satire of itself. It is dull. I mean, it is dull. It doesn't even pick out some really good deep cuts of Elvis. It is just doing his most famous songs. I mean, it really was so unimpressive to me in every possible way. So that's the one film I give a negative review to. I know people love that film. Some people love that film. I would just say that, you know, if you're a younger viewer and like that film, do track down, oh, I, There's there are documentaries, maybe I should track one down that I like the best, but there are way more interesting introductions to Elvis as a persona and Elvis as a musician and his music than this film. All right, so that's my list. Once again, everything, everywhere, all at once. Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inisherin, Top Gun, Maverick, Tar, Triangle of Sadness, All Quiet on the Western Front, The Fablements and Women Talking, down near the bottom of the list, and then Elvis at the very bottom, and by the way, just to be clear, everything from that two through nine position, they're all films that are like a seven and a half, a seven on a scale of one to 10. So they're all solid films. By the way, seven and a half for me is a, is a, is a good film, right? I, I, I only give a film like that gets an eight is absolutely one of my favorite films of the year. A film that gets a nine or a 10 is like one of the best films I've ever seen. That's my general ranking system. A 10 is like a perfect movie, which is by definition almost impossible. A nine is nearly perfect and definitely one for the ages. Like it's going to be on my decade list or competing to be on my decade list. If I give film an eight, that film is definitely going to be on my top ten of the year, almost certainly, unless it's an incredibly packed year. And then everything uh, you know, in the seven to eight range, anything in there, even a six, a six is okay. I'd say it's fine. You could check it out if you like. Seven to eight, anywhere in that range, it's a solid film. It might make the top 10 at the end of the year if it's not a great year for films. And by the way, that's basically where everything, you know, everything from two through nine on my list is in that range, uh, except for maybe Tar, which could like end up being a nine once in retrospect. I, it, I'm not convinced on that yet, but it's possible Tar could jump to the top of my list or near the top of my list. Everything everywhere all at once. It, number one is unqualified in that nine range. It's definitely nearly a perfect film for me. Or at least my experience of it, and uh, and then Elvis is like a five or something, which is like half good, half bad. And the good parts are like probably Austin Butler's performance, for example, and most of the rest is not great, in my opinion. So these are good films. I just want to be clear that the films I put near the bottom are not bad. They're just uh, except for Elvis. <laughs> Elvis, no, not good. All right. So stay tuned. Later this week, I will be discussing with Sona the penultimate episode of Your Honor, Part Nineteen which leaves us just one episode away. And then of course, Succession is coming back, Yellow Jackets is coming back. And at some point, speaking of musical biopic, this one, a fictional one that has as generic a plot as you can imagine, Daisy Jones and the Six, I will be recording a conversation with my sister discussing that show, which I have pretty mixed opinions of, and that'll be coming up in one of these upcoming episodes as well. I hope you enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us and you'll know when those episodes come out. Check out the Academy Awards next week, or don't. I probably won't, but I'll probably watch all the best clips afterwards, and we'll see if there's any outlandish shenanigans this year, whether it be celebrities slapping each other or the wrong film being given the uh, award for best picture. The awards have not had the best reputation the past few years, but we'll see what craziness happens this year, if any. Anyway, enjoy all or most of that, and...
1: Just like a simple sound.